Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you, Sarah. We are KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And our team consists of the seven-time Grand Slam singles champion, former world number one, Matt Svelander. He's in Haley, Idaho, coming to us from Gravity Fitness and Tennis. Matt, thanks for what you did for us down here in Denver this last weekend. How are things back in Haley now? Yeah, things are, things are really good. Uh, I had a great time with you at the Columbine Country Club. Um, you showed me how a tennis club is supposed to be run and how you get the membership to cooperate and smile and have fun while hitting a tennis ball. So I got a lot to learn there, Andy, from you. But thank you. Great time. Trust me when I tell you that having you there helped a lot with regard to the the smiles around the club. So, again, thank you so much. We're also joined by the two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, who is down in Phoenix, Arizona. And, Johnny, I'm assuming your weather is better than ours is about to be up here uh, in Colorado and Idaho. You keeping warm down there in, in Phoenix? Yeah, things are good, Andy. It's finally cooling off a little bit. Very excited for the upcoming weather that, uh, that Phoenix will bring us and happy uh, about our guest who, who I believe is also in Phoenix. So I'll let you take the intro. She is in the Phoenix Scottsdale area and she is the one and only Bethany Maddox-Sands, a nine-time major winner in her own right and just getting back from the Czech Republic where she has been gone for four months and trying to get caught up on her rest. Bethany, how are you? How are things down in Phoenix as well? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm down in Phoenix as well with Johnny and the weather is amazing. I mean, I'm coming from Czech, so it's a little chilly there, but I've been, honestly, I've been going from bubble to bubble. It was freezing in Paris, so I'm, I'm really happy to be home. So Bethany, let's start with this because I have been so impressed and I think we all have been with what we have seen from what you have done as an analyst on ESPN and you're doing such a great job, but how difficult is that balancing act? Because you're still relevant as far as a playing career is concerned. You just made it to the quarterfinals of the French open and the doubles. You're still playing lots of tournaments. You're still a a factor uh, and, and a contender to win major championships, both in the ladies doubles and the mixed doubles. And then you've got to turn around and know exactly what's going on with these other players. You're focused on your own tennis. You're focused on everybody else. Is it difficult? It seems pretty easy when we watch you do it. Andy, honestly, that uh, those are some great questions that I've had to ask myself. I mean, obviously there is a balance between doing the TV work and then still having time to train and rest and recover and play and, and mentally kind of deal with that. And I think uh, in all honesty, ESPN has been amazing. They've really kind of, uh, 
been flexible with my schedule, obviously understanding that I'm still playing and that that's a benefit. You know, I'm in the locker room with these girls and a lot of them are, I call friends. And, you know, for me, I think the TV side of things is pretty easy. I'm talking about a sport that I love, a sport that I know about people that I respect, that I've played with, that I've played against. So I just bring my personality um, to the TV booth. I bring my personality on the court. I think that's been a big part of my success on the court is, is really staying true to my personality and finding ways to enjoy it. But I like being busy. So I feel like that's why I, I haven't minded kind of jumping from the makeup set in the TV room to go into practicing on the court. Because like you said, you know, I still feel that fire and that passion of the competitiveness to, uh, to go out there and still play. So I feel like so far I'm balancing it out, but you know, at some point I'm sure I'll have to make some, some decisions. <laughs> Uh, Bethany, I mean, I'm so curious. Obviously, you said you just came home from Ostrava. What is it like to be in these bubbles and be a professional tennis player? And the fire and the passion. I mean, can you? Is there a difference, or is it different players? How do you feel? Uh, okay, so I'll be really transparent right now. The bubbles are not my thing. I'm pretty outgoing. One of the reasons that I love being a professional tennis player is that I get to travel the world. I get to visit these beautiful cities. I really do my best to immerse myself in the culture, whether it's with the dining experiences, whether it's seeing a little bit of the city. And, you know, it's something that I actually started doing in the later part of my career, which has really helped me sort of get my mind off tennis and, and sort of stay balanced. And so with these bubbles, it kind of takes that balance away. And you're living and dying kind of by receiving a text about your COVID test every few days. And, you know, it's just, it's just additional stresses. I think that we've all sort of had to, uh, you know, deal with at, by playing professional tennis and it's, it's challenging. I will say, I mean, traveling, you, you know, you're taking on a lot of risk that, you know, it's not like we all have private planes that we can go from bubble to bubble and feel like we're safe. I mean, we're all getting on, you know, public transportation, you know, I'm on Ryanair you know, in Czech Republic, you know, getting to my hotel. And obviously once you get there, you take a COVID test and then you're in your room until you get the results. So you're having room service. Most of the time you're there for 24 to 36 hours. You know, so you think about that, that's your life once a week. And hopefully 2021, you know, we can kind of take some notes from this season and figure out how to find that balance. But for me personally, to answer, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a challenge. It's, it's, you know, it kind of crushes my free spirit a little bit, but, you know, I, I understand it's, it's kind of what the world, where the world is at right now. And so I know everyone's doing their best to keep everyone safe and healthy, but damn, I, I, I got to figure out, I got to figure out a way to, to find my, <laughs> find my joy. <laughs> Bethany, I wanted to ask you, well, first of all, congratulations on an amazing career. I know you still have a lot left to, to do out there, but nine Grand Slam titles, a gold medal, and and top 30 in singles and number one in the world in doubles. It, we're, we're all very impressed. And, uh, you know, we've been following Sophia Kennan's success. And uh, obviously you played doubles with her um, recently. And, and um, I'd like to get your take on her. I know she, you know, we talked about her last time on our show. And I told Matt and Andy that I was so impressed with what she did, having lost, you know, love and love at the, at the Italian Open and then to come back and get to the finals of the French Open showed incredible uh, character, persistence, and, and mental stability to be able to do that. Having played with her, can you give us some insight on, on Sophia Cannon, what you think of her for the future, and how she is as a person? 
Yeah, no, so listen, Sophia on the court is a mental giant. And I think she's taking one of the strengths that I would say a tennis player has to have and really is the best at it, which is forgetting about mistakes, forgetting about results and going into the next moment with a fresh start. And, you know, I, I saw this actually earlier in her career. I remember she lost a pretty tight match at a Fed Cup. I think maybe she had match points. She had a chance to win. And Fed Cup brings all these other pressures. And she lost that match. And I remember thinking that, like, that would be a tough match for some players to overcome. Like, it would take them a little while to sort of get their confidence back up. And I remember her going to the next tournament and doing the next couple of tournaments and just doing really well and keeping her momentum and the same thing. I mean, I played doubles with her in Rome. We didn't, we had an okay match. Then she goes and play, you know, loses O and O against Azarenka who let's, let's be honest is on fire, but still, Oh, I mean, O and O is, is a tough uh, bagel to swallow. And she went on and made finals of French open. I mean, really, she is able to sort of be, I, I don't want to say she doesn't lose energy because she, you see her emotions on the court. She gets upset if she's missing, making mistakes that she knows she doesn't want to make, but she doesn't let them affect her. She really, she shows that emotion, then it washes off her back. And she does that better than anyone right now. And it's why she is top five in the world right now and still going to continue knocking on the door of slam finals. Well, and it just makes perfect sense for you guys to be out there together because you can probably help her manage those emotions through a doubles match and probably beyond that. But what I wanted to ask you about, Bethany, and it's just so different from when Mats and Johnny were out there doing their thing on the tour because of the social media component and how that kind of plays a role in the success or, or lack of success in a player's career. How much sort of pressure do you feel to make sure that that component is, is, is managed professionally and that you're putting the right things out there and to make sure that you're, you're getting the hits and getting the likes and doing the things that help you max out your career. Really the best advice I got was to, to be yourself. If you're putting out great content, it's going to be great. And it's eventually going to get out there. Obviously there's some tips and tricks that you can do with tags and hashtags and things like that. And a lot of players now have someone helping them with their social media. But for me, it was important to really keep it authentic. That's why I, I actually never had anyone handle my social media. I've done all the posts. Everything that you see on there is all done by me or Justin. Justin is behind the scenes taking a video. Uh, I'm approving, of course, before he puts it on. But, you know, I really wanted the idea that to use my social media as a way to get to know who I was. You know, I feel like you can sort of get a feel for some of these players only on the, what you see on the court, what you see in interviews. And even then you're kind of getting bits and pieces. And I felt like for a long time, I think people didn't really know who I was. And they just kind of saw this crazy girl with high socks. And I was like, no, no, really. There's like more to me than that. Um, so for, so that's, that's really what I personally want to use my social media for, even if it's after some losses, like that was a big part of it too, was, you know, I didn't want to sort of disappear after I lost or, or things like that. And I would say social media has helped me a little bit because I've done, you know, sort of my Monday motivations, I've done my quotes, and I've really gained a lot of fans that have supported me through my ups and downs. And it's really, you know, for me, again, one of the reasons I love playing tennis, which is why this bubble is so tough is, is the fans. Like I love playing in stadiums. I love for the fans, but I know there's a lot of people that follow me on social media and I liked, I like to be a voice and I like 
you know, sharing sort of my energy with these fans and, and, and sort of being the example to kids that you can have fun, enjoy your life, work hard, train hard, be yourself and, and do things in life. But for the most part, I've kept it pretty authentic and casual and just used it to have a lot of fun and, and be inspired. So, and, and to be real, because I, I don't know that there's enough of that out there. How competitive is it amongst the girls as far as followers and things like that? Uh, I got to ask that. I'm sure there's a general awareness on how many followers everyone has. But, you know, I actually think a lot of girls on tour follow each Like we all communicate through Insta DMs and, you know, we all follow each other. It's a good way to kind of keep up with everyone at tournaments. I'll be honest, like I sometimes get my news updates because that's Insta's the first app that I've opened sometimes. So, you know, I, I have a general awareness of what everyone's doing, which is kind of nice. And I like the banter. I like leaving uh, messages on their posts and everything. I, I don't, I, I try to positively troll people, but um, you know, I, I, we all follow each other on there. We all kind of stay updated, even if we're at different tournaments or the same one. So it's, it's not, I don't think it's super competitive. I mean, it's a big, the social media world is huge. It's like somebody's demographic could be completely different than mine. That's completely different than someone's in Australia or Europe that I don't know that there's, you know, this ultra competitiveness when we're on there. Uh, Bethany, uh, I wanted to, to find out because I think that to, to some players, you touched on a little bit, it's very difficult to, to be in a bubble that I get. But playing in front of fans or no fans uh, is all, obviously also tough. But do you think there is also a situation where for some players, they're playing without fans, but they're finding out that they actually just love to play tennis? No fans or no prize money or whatever. It's just a competition between you and the person across the net. Do you think somehow... It's, it's given some players that extra uh, energy that I actually love my job. It's not about anybody else. It's about me and my opponent. Definitely. I think, I think a lot of players have gained that exact perspective. And I think you can see it when you uh, listen to the reactions of them winning points on the court. You still hear the come-ons and the fist pumps. It's just echoing now instead of, you know, getting lost in the, in the crowd applause. But I, I think, I mean, and you, and you guys know this because you've been, been close with some of the, the players on tour, but we're competitive when it comes to like pool or ping pong or a board game. I mean, it, it, we don't need a crowd of people to be competitive. Most of us are where we're at because we're naturally competitive. And I think you do see all the players that, uh, that love the game. And I, I think it was a great opportunity to really focus. You know, there weren't as many, let's be honest, there maybe weren't as many distractions for some players and the media wasn't allowed in. Uh, there wasn't a crowd. So you really could kind of walk around without having that stress. For example, at, at the site in New York, it was in, an interesting feel there to have it so open. Like usually players aren't walking around the stadium. They aren't walking around Arthur Ashe. They aren't walking around the grounds there because it's so packed. So you might find some players saying, damn, I have a lot of time to really focus on my warm up, eat. Here's I'm getting sleep because what else is there to do? And, and, you know, figuring some things out along those lines. I think you also could say there's some players that like not having the crowd because they don't feel as much pressure and maybe they're playing well too. Uh, so it's, you know, what's been challenging is if you haven't had good results or maybe been up, your results haven't been to your expectations is how you deal with that. Because right now it's more challenging. There's not as many opportunities and you see some player, you know, you get a loss here and there and you're just, you're really having to think about it. So I, I don't think, 
I don't necessarily think it's bad. I just think it's different. And I think everyone's kind of been dealing with it a little bit in a little different way. And I think, like you said, I, I think it, this is giving a chance for players to really get back to basics and maybe figure out why they started playing tennis and, and why they love it. Because eventually when the crowds do come back, we're all going to be, how pumped are we all going to be? You know, it's, I think everyone will be pumped, but um, you know, until then, I, I think you're, you're putting up a good question to players. Our guest today on kickserveradio.com is the rather shy and understated Bethany Maddox Sands and Johnny Matz, what do you guys think? Should we hire her to be our social media person? Cause we don't know what the hell we're doing. You're talking about how it's like an example for young people. It's the old people that need, you know, we need to get our stuff out there. That, why do you think we want you on our show is because people might actually dial into this thing. We might get some hits cause we got, we got BMS on here. So uh, any chance you'll hook us up? Listen, I can line up some photos, photo shoots for you. Okay. It's all about lighting and angles. I got you guys. Like just, just let me know. Well, we got to get you, we got to get you a, an Instagram account first, Andy. I know that would be a good start. <laughs> you got to start with that, Andy. I know. I know. I'm, way, I'm the oldest guy on this call right now, but we enjoyed what we saw when you had, uh, when you had, with you and Vasek had Matt's and, and Stefan on, so we wanted to turn the tables on you today and you are absolutely a, a delight and a pleasure as always. And we so appreciate it. Congratulations on getting through 2020 as best you could. And we look forward for, you know, maybe you completing that career grand slam at Wimbledon and one of those events this coming year. And obviously the great work that you're doing on ESPN. We, uh, we always look forward to that as well. Awesome. As always, I enjoy being on the show with you, Andy, you give some great energy too. It's always positive, but um, yeah, here's to 2021 season. Uh, guys, there's a lot to look forward to. Um, I think there's going to be some changes, but I know a lot of players are, are looking forward to the season ahead. Uh, you're going to see some players that maybe haven't played this year that are going to be fresh. I'm going to freshen up here at the end of the year, so uh, I'll be ready to go. But th- thank you guys for having me on, and uh, I'm sure I'll be back on soon. I hope so. She is the one and only Bethany Maddox-Sands. We are kickserveradio.com part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we've got much more. I can't guarantee it'll be as good as that segment with Bethany, but we got much more, so don't go away. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt's is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MattsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you 
when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, welcome everybody. Tennis Across America, our new feature, and we've been on both coasts the last couple of times out. We had Peter Renner a few weeks back, Jonathan Stark a couple of weeks ago, and now we go to the great state of Texas, where we are joined by my USPTA counterpart. He is the president of USPTA Texas. He is the director of tennis at Bentry Country Club. He is Craig Bell. Craig, welcome to Tennis Across America. How are things out in Texas uh, as we as we move into the fall season here? Well, hi, AZ. Good to see you. Actually, uh, tennis is going along really, really well right now in the great state of Texas. I'm happy to report that uh, I think most places know that uh, tennis is the number one sport that uh, people can social distance with. And we've had an unbelievable uh, time at my club and I think around the Dallas area, around the state of Texas with uh, the opportunity to uh, work and and be a part of uh, an industry where you know, people want to get out and, you know, play some tennis. I know at my club, we're really busy. Earlier in the show, we had Bethany Maddox-Sands on, and Mats and Johnny and I just had so much fun visiting with her. How impressed have you been with watching Bethany continue to balance two careers, which is one of a relevant player that's still a contender to win major championships in the doubles and in the mixed doubles, uh, but also seeing the work that she's done on ESPN and the, the charisma and, uh, and that great smile that she's bringing to, uh, to tennis coverage. No, I think, I think you're right. Uh, I met Bethany Maddox uh, probably about four or five years ago. I could tell she had, she has it, that charisma that you talked about. I mean, she just has, she's full of life, full of energy. I mean, she was just fantastic. You could tell that she had a career moving forward anytime she wanted to uh, in the, the media world. I, I'm not surprised that she's doing you know such a great job on the ESPN side and then also playing tennis. It's great to see her back after that uh, horrific knee injury that she suffered at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. So, she, I mean, she, as far as uh, being able to play, being one of the best players in the world in doubles and then also mixed doubles and then also being on top of her A game in the broadcasting career, that's a triple threat in my my opinion. No doubt about it. And you're a triple threat as well, CB. You got it going on at Bentry Country Club. You got things under control with your USPTA Texas division, and you're doing a great job uh, behind the microphone as well. And I appreciate you uh, getting on this side of the interview uh, and being my guest today on Tennis Across America, representing Texas as well as you do and always have. Thanks so much for, uh, for everything you do for the sport of tennis and enjoyed the visit as always. Well, well thank, thank you, Andy. It's always a pleasure. And we wore our orange shirt today, and we'll say hook them, all right? I appreciate that hook. The horn's got to win this weekend, and that's rare, so we'll take it. All right. Well, have a great day, AZ. Always a pleasure. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Tennis on air with AZ, Mats, and Johnny. We're part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we're still buzzing, guys. 
because Bethany Maddox Sands abs she brings it to the tennis court, but she brings it even more when she's got a microphone and it's not pretentious, it's not disingenuous, it's authentic, it's real energy, it's positive. Matt's you do the stuff that she does, but you do it for Eurosport. She's doing it for ESPN. How good is she? Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, so fun. Obviously, you can tell when you, you watch her, and I think the first impression of her is correct. She's, she likes to have fun. Uh, she kind of likes to stand out in a very positive way uh, and not afraid of it, not shy. Um, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, she's going to do so well in TV. She's already doing it. She's a great doubles player, but, but more than anything, she's an inspiration uh, that can sort of carry the torch to keep our game as popular as it is, or even more popular than it is right now. She, she's perfect. Johnny, you know, when you were bringing in players for the Arizona Tennis Classic, a lot of the decisions that you would make about a wild card had to do with whether a player was sort of fan friendly. Is this somebody that would, you know, sell tickets for you? And it's not always about necessarily just the ranking or the playing resume. And it seems like Bethany is a perfect example of someone who maybe hasn't won a lot of majors from a singles perspective, but people certainly know who she is and she is a fan favorite. And when she's out there, people want to watch. Yeah, I agree, Andy. I mean, having run a tournament and having wild cards um, to give out, um, obviously you want the best players possible, but there is something to be said for sure about the character and the personality of, of who you're giving the wild card to, because, you know, you have your, your sponsors and you have your, your fans out there that are paying good money and they want to see people that are, you know, that are quality individuals and that are going to behave themselves and act right. And um, the personality is, is a big thing and it sells tickets. And Bethany, you know, we were fortunate because of you to have her come out one day to the tournament and it was incredible how many people just came up to her just she just came out for the day to watch the tennis and that's the kind of person you want to be when you're on the tour and I don't think players understand that enough that it's more than just the tennis it's how you behave how you interact and that's going to help you help your career and help you in the future one of the things that we were going to talk about guys, and I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit, but it was such a nice treat to be able to, uh, to chat with Bethany. We were going to talk about some of the the different hierarchies of, of the sport of tennis and where we sort of rank players all time with regard to some of the things that you're alluding to there, Johnny, not just necessarily the resume itself, but what these players bring to the sport as a whole, how have they helped grow the sport? How have they helped the sport evolve in a positive way? Uh, if we look at Swedish tennis, Matt's overall, and we look at the sort of, we'll call it the organizational chart, the org chart, or I guess in the case of Sweden, we'll call it the Borg chart um, because it starts with him. And then it works its way down to probably the next two guys down are yourself and Stefan Edberg. And then you go maybe one more rung down on that chart and you start talking about the Anders Jards, the Yoki Nystrom's, the Henrik Sundstrom's, the, the Robin Soderling's. Was there anybody in, in Swedish tennis that maybe wasn't popping people's eyes out from what they did as a, from a player's perspective, but that really brought a lot to the table because of other things they were doing, whether it was philanthropically, uh, maybe helping with the juniors in Sweden, who were some of the guys that were really the important role models and, 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 and people in the sport overall. 
Yeah, so I think um, um, uh, Michael Pernforce, I think, is the one that that uh, Swedish people and sports enthusiasts they they know they know who he is, but they know how he played, and he was different from us. He he hit a lot of drop shots. He had great hands. Uh, he he could hit trick shots like they do today, like a Nick Curious uh, attempts to do. Uh, and then he was from the South. So uh, the South, you know, different dialect, different accent, not easy to understand when he was on TV. So he was kind of a, a combination of somebody that was a little bit of a clown. Uh, he liked to have fun outside the court. He liked to hang out at the Swedish Open in Bostad or the Stockholm Open. And, and he'll, you know, get a table at the local nightclub and all of us would show up and suddenly there, I wouldn't go otherwise. And suddenly the, the, the tennis players are uh, looked upon in Sweden as more of, of just normal human beings that are great athletes. So Michael Pernforce, most probably, Bjorn Borg didn't really do anything for Swedish tennis, except that he was Bjorn Borg and because of him, uh, winning everything, obviously, most probably the best athlete we've ever had. Maybe the nicest guy uh, when it comes to a great athlete. But he made uh, uh, the government, really, the local communities, build indoor tennis courts. And that's how we came up. Um, you know, otherwise we would play on, on school sort of gym floors. But because of Bjorn, they wanted to turn tennis into what it then became. So very different. Stefan Edberg, of course, uh, different completely, much more normal. I was quite outgoing and, and had a lot of other interests. Uh, I had a bit of music, um, uh, some bad behavior that maybe uh, Stefan Edberg would never, ever, ever attempt at. So I think we all had a different role, but um, it's very interesting. Bethany Maddox Sands. I mean, I was going to ask you, Andy, that's who you want to steer kids towards. Go and watch how she plays tennis, how she acts, the energy. And, and I think it's what a great role model. It doesn't mean you have to be winning Grand Slams. It's just it's all about the attitude. And she's she's the perfect one. And so, Johnny, that leads me into my next question, because Bethany does really do a lot, not just for American tennis, but she is a shining example for for young kids and, and particularly young girls that are coming up to, to really you know, fight like hell on the tennis court, but also have other interests and uh, whether it be, you know, fashion or the way she does her hair or just the way she smiles, she just brings, you know, that positive energy. Now in American tennis, if we look at that hierarchy, let's look at it from, from a specific question, which is when you look at the National Tennis Center, the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, which has one court named after Arthur Ashe Center Court and the entire tennis center named after Billie Jean King, who's the next player the next american player in line that should have a court named after them i could see easily you having you know johnny macarena which just kind of rolls off the tongue very easily or is it jimmy connors is it chris everett for all the majors that she won who in your mind is most deserving of a court named for them at the billy jean king national tennis center Wow, you're putting me on the spot on that one, Andy. Um, that's that's what I do. <laughs> you know, I, I, gosh, I would have to go with Chris Everett because when you look at John McEnroe and you look at Jimmy Connors, while they are legends in our in the game for sure uh, for men's U.S. tennis, you know, you, you then you'd have to go to Agassi if you're talking about career slams. You know, Agassi has more. Sampras has more. You know, Sampras doesn't quite have the personality. I, I, my pick would be Chris Everett. Just off the top of my head, 18 major championships in singles and a record, uh, at least winning a major every year for 13 straight years. 
So if you add up John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors together, uh, they still don't match what Chris Everett did. And I agree that that role model status for uh, American tennis probably goes a long way. Matt's, do you think that the that the behavior that Connors was known for and even that Mac was known for, uh, although you would think Mac simply because it's a, a New York facility and Mac's a New Yorker. I mean, what are your thoughts on who you think might be next for an American player to have a court named for them? Yeah, that's so tough because obviously uh, uh, Jimmy Connors is the one that that brought the New York crowd to life more than any other player, more than Andre Agassi, uh, definitely more than Pete Sampras and, and more than John McEnroe. Uh, and, and especially towards the end of his career. Now, some people obviously uh, loved Jimmy Connors when he was on the court. And I think very few people know or knew Jimmy Connors off the court anyway. Uh, but I, th- I find it interesting with somebody like John McEnroe uh, that, you know, no one really came after him trying to play like John McEnroe. No one really behaved like him. No one came after Jimmy Connors and tried to play like Jimmy Connors. Was it too difficult to play their style of tennis? Or had it something to do with their personality? And now moving uh, into where we are now, John McEnroe, I think, has shown that he, he might have been a selfish individual, which we all were at our best, but he has shown that He's got his own tennis academy. Uh, he's brilliant on TV. He's made. He's basically single-handedly made the ATP Champions Tour, the our senior tour, so to speak, survive. Uh, by far the most popular player that ever played there. Every promoter always wanted John McEnroe, even though they were afraid that he was going to tell some sponsor that you know, he's seen enough of him and he's never going to come back and please don't, you know, whatever. So I think John McEnroe is, is kind of growing into it. And interesting with Chris Everett to me too. I think through TV, we're finding out uh, about Chris Everett more than, than what we saw because she was kind of stone-faced when she played. Um, very good attitude, but obviously positive, but now we know that she's, you know, she's, she's a soft individual. She cares about tennis. She follows tennis. She has her tennis academy. So I think TV really uh, makes a difference in that way or what you do with your career after your professional days. So Andre Agassi, I mean, what he's done off the court with his schools uh, for, for the less unfortunate, that's unbelievable. Um, but then is that unfair to somebody like Pete Sampras, you know, who obviously said that I'm going to let my racket do my talking for me and not my behavior or my mouth. So it's such a tough question. But I, I mean, I think John McEnroe is most probably on the men's side, the next one in line because of what he's done the last 30 years, which has nothing to do with winning majors. That's an interesting point, Johnny, that Matt's makes that I never really thought about till he just said it, which is nobody really followed McEnroe with a McEnroe type game, all of a sudden it went from the McEnroe era to the Sampras Agassi Courier era, which really was more defined by the style of tennis. I think that Agassi and Courier were playing. There was kind of a one of a kind guy, Pete, but I think that Courier and and Agassi in particular started a style of game that you kind of had obviously some exposure to early on at Boletari's, you would have thought there would have been a generation of serving volleyers with great feel and great touch and imagination, a la John McEnroe. But it turned out once they once they made John McEnroe, they kind of broke the mold. Yeah, maybe it maybe it just tells everyone how unique and how superior of a player John McEnroe was with that style of play. The the hands that John McEnroe had while he was playing 
Lightning were probably maybe the best of all time because he wasn't a really, he wasn't a very tall, powerful guy, but his finesse and the way he used that left-handed serve was was so devastating uh, to players. And he just covered that net so well. And um, maybe it was just almost too hard of a game to follow. So you you make a great point, Andy, in that, you know, when the Boletari day started, um, it became that big shot forehand. Um, you know, having that weapon as that forehand was was the way players were working their games around. So it is kind of unfortunate that we didn't see more of the of the McEnroe style of play, although you know, it's hard to say. I mean, Sampras with the serve, he really was kind of like a baseliner. I mean, it, he didn't start coming up till later. He came up some, obviously, off that serve, but he really was more of a baseliner than a volleyer like McEnroe. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be fun to see another John McEnroe style player? To, to I don't know if we'll ever see it, but 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 his tennis was phenomenal. I mean, Andy, you're you're in the in the. Uh, line or in the trenches or whatever you call it uh, as a uh, as a tennis director and a teaching pro if some kid comes up and comes to you and and he's got that continental grip same grip on all shots John McEnroe first serve second serve slice back on top spin backhand volleys forehand I mean the same grip is what he's told me anyway would you try and change it or would you allow that kid you know he's talented you know he's going to be a strong uh big person because his parents might be of the genetics genetics are right would you change their grips and and no you can't play like that because only one person could what would you do andy i i personally had that situation and you met the kid matt's at the uh at the event in Denver. And that was Matt Sayer. And when he was real young, he showed me an affinity for playing the net and for having a game that was similar to that. And he was never going to be a real big guy. And so we worked on a lot of what would help develop those hands of his, because I felt like the more opportunities he had to win tennis matches, not necessarily singles or doubles, but just tennis matches in general was going to add value to his game, to his level of confidence and to what might evolve into the potential for maybe a college scholarship for him. So I was chastised a little bit in back in the, back in the office with the rest of the pros saying, you're spending too much time with this kid at the net. You gotta, you know, you gotta have him hitting bigger groundies and playing like the rest of these other kids. And I kind of shrugged and said, you know, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree because I think this kid's going to be that kid that's ranked eighth in the section, but everybody wants to play doubles with him. Like he's going to be just barely inside the top 10, but he's going to be the second or third best doubles player in the entire Intermountain. And that's exactly what happened. And he got to Kalamazoo uh, as a, as a doubles player, but he did pretty well in the singles when he got there. So I don't regret having made that decision. Plus, you know, what do I know about playing the type of singles that you played or that Johnny played or that Jimmy Arias played or that Aaron Crickstein played because I grew up playing the way I did. And all of my confidence came on the doubles court. And whenever I win a singles match, I always kind of have to laugh because I feel like a doubles player that won a singles match, but I just use that same skill set, And I think that there's value there. So I personally wouldn't change it, but I don't know that that's necessarily the right answer to get a kid to be able to really max out and not just get to Kalamazoo, but maybe get to the second week. No, I like it. I, th- I think, I think we, yeah, I, I am with you. I think you got to let them develop the way they do and you can tweak some of the technique, but uh, I, I think it comes 
I think it comes with personality. That's kind of what he wants to play, and he wants to hit field shots, and then you need a certain grip because you can't hit field shots with a semi-Western or a full Western forehand grip, but you can with a Continental. So I think very often the game and technique is reflected by the personality and how we picked up the racket. The first time you got a racket, how did you pick it up, and what are you trying to accomplish? Peter Rennett is a guy who played in our days, Johnny, uh, that played like John McEnroe. Or should I say, John McEnroe played like Peter Rennett. I'm not sure who came first, but it's the only guy, really. They both grew up in Port Washington, played doubles together, played together at Stanford. All right, Johnny, when we come back, you brought up a good point about a big comeback that Diego Schwartzman just had. And you were looking at it from the perspective of that poor guy that had him six, two, five, two, what he must be thinking about this morning. So when we come back, let's talk about some of the matches that we look back upon where somebody came all the way back and we'll kind of look at it from the perspective of the guy that made the comeback, but also what's that guy feeling like that let that match get away. We've all had a few. You're listening to kickserveradio.com tennis on air with AZ Mats and Johnny. We're going to talk about some, whether you want to call them huge comebacks or huge chokes when we come back. So don't go away. Okay, everybody, you've heard us talk about squad pod on the show quite a bit. And I'm now joined by Melise Michael and he is the product manager for squad pod and Melise tennis professionals at private clubs with their students. They like to use Facebook to communicate. So tell us a little bit about why SquadPod might be different from something like just using Facebook to communicate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. So SquadPod is designed and built around something we like to call closed architecture. Everything you do in SquadPod stays confidential in our U.S. owned and operated communication platform that's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Unlike Facebook, where anyone can kind of find your pages, view your discussions, and even your photos, things in SquadPod are non-discoverable. And it's only accessible by specific people that you want to have access to that content. So it's private, it's confidential, and it's secure. But how does SquadPod handle my data? Because you hear a lot about these companies that are willing to share it with other companies or even sell it. Yeah, so we don't mine or sell any of your data for predictive analytics or training or anything like that. What you'll find out there is a majority of the social media platforms are actually built on the opposite of what we are, which is open architecture and have no problem selling third parties, everything about you, your decisions, all your data. So within open architecture systems, privacy kind of becomes this illusion, almost like a false sense of security. Seems like there's lots of options on the places that I use SquadPod. Help me understand what those are. Great question, Andy. So you can use SquadPod on and off the court with family or even for your business and at work. It's got chat, video, file sharing, and discussions all in one place. Best of all, we're committed to being 100% American made and protecting your right to communicate privately and securely. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I have SquadPod and I love it. And, you know, learn more about privacy and and SquadPod at squadpod.com slash serve. So that's S-Q-U-A-D-P-O-D dot com slash serve s-e-r-v-e and and based on this conversation i'd say that if you have facebook there's no reason you shouldn't check out squad pod as a new way to communicate safely and privately i highly recommend it
Okay, everybody, final segment, kickserveradio.com. Of course, want to thank Bethany Maddox-Sands for joining us earlier in the show. And we talked a little bit about the hierarchy of American tennis, and now we want to shift gears yet again. Johnny, you brought up when we were chatting about an incredible comeback that Diego Schwartzman had where he was down 6-2, 5-2, and you were looking at it sort of from the perspective of the kid that had the opportunity to beat him and what you know a tough morning he must be having waking up after letting that one get away. So let's talk about that match that just happened, and then we're going to talk about a few more that people may have forgotten about that when you think about it, you just go, gosh, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, Diego Schwartzman um, in his uh, quarterfinal match, Cologne, right, Mats? I believe it was in Cologne, indoors playing Fokina from Spain, a young uh, up-and-coming player, I think he's top 40 in the world, is uh, playing uh, top 10 guy in Diego Schwartzman, newly top 10, uh, at eight in the world and has an opportunity where he's serving for the match um, at six two five two and ends up uh, having three times the chance to serve out the match in that second set and loses the set seven six and then ends up losing the third set six six one so you know I was talking to Andy about it and saying to myself love to get Matt's take on how does a player you know, deal with a loss like that, uh, 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 where you, where you basically have that kind of an opportunity to have a win like that could set up your whole year. I even think back to the Australian open this past year where tennis Sangren had seven match points in the quarterfinals against Roger Federer to basically have the biggest win of his life and have an opportunity to be in the semifinals of the Australian and these kinds of situations for, for, for great players, top players, even Federer has had matches on his racket and lost. What are your thoughts on, on having an opportunity like that Matt's for a player like Fokina and where, do, where do you go from here and, and how does he get over it? Yeah, I think Johnny, I think it has to do with, uh, at what point in your career it happens. It makes a huge difference, I think. Tennis Sangren, obviously, uh, he hasn't been on tour that long, but he's halfway through his career maybe. So I think for him, not beating Roger Federer in a, a big tournament like Australian Open, that's tough. I mean, that's a golden opportunity, and it doesn't happen. And you beat Roger Federer. I mean, you could you could get TV commentating jobs because you beat Roger Federer uh, in a Grand Slam tournament. So that one most probably stung a bit. Uh, Davidoff, I think his name, Fokina, the young Spanish guy, he's on his way up. Um, I think that it's tough, 6-2-5-2, serving for it three times hurts. Uh, but at the same time, I think if, if, you, if he's going to get to the top, I think he will realize that I was close. I need to work on a few things. And in the end of the match, Schwartzman was way too good. So I think, it's, uh, I think it all depends on your mindset. And I think some players will use it as, uh, as an encouragement, as a confidence boost. And some players, uh, and I think more so when you're later in the career, you realize that, oh, my God, I, I, I kind of choked it. Let's just take Sasha Zverev. I mean, in the U.S. Open final, you got to say that that was a huge opportunity. Two sets to love, serving for the match once. Uh, in the in the fifth set, uh, Grand Slam final, does he come back from that? So I, I think it depends on the personality, and I think I do think that if you're getting to the top like Roger Federer did, and he had a few opportunities early in his career and let them slip, I guess uh, Rafa Nadal has two sets to love against uh, Roger Federer early in 2005 in Miami. Let that one slip. 
and look what happened to Nadal. So I think if you're going to get to the top, I think these things are building blocks. And then earlier in the U.S. Open, obviously, even much worse than what we saw with Sasha Zverev was what we saw with Stefanos Tsitsipas. And I was real worried that that one was going to leave a mark mentally and emotionally on him. And then we saw him kind of shrug that one off, go to the French Open, get to the semis, take Novak Djokovic to the fifth set. How important was it for him to be able to come right back, go right back into a major, uphold his seed, play five sets with Novak Djokovic and become a guy that looked like a contender to win a major again, fresh off of the heels of, of something that difficult. Yet, I mean, you can compare it to Taylor Fritz a little bit. Uh, he lost to Denis Shapovalov at the Open. He had two sets to love, I believe. Uh, should have won that match. Um, so it'll be interesting to follow uh, Fritz and, of course, Tsitsipas. We already know how he reacted. Uh, no problem at all. So, again, I think, it's a, I think it's, it, it'll hurt some players. Uh, I don't think it makes a difference in their future career. I, don't, I really don't. If you have it in you, you're going to get to the top. And if you don't, I, I think these things are just bad luck. Didn't happen this time and most probably won't happen again. So um, I think that uh, it depends on the human. I think that Vitas Garolaitis said it best when he said no one beats Vitas Garolaitis 17 times in a row uh, after he finally beat Jimmy Connors. But do you guys remember, do either of you remember the match at the U.S. Open between – Manolo Orantes and Guillermo Vilas. Do you guys remember that semi? Mass, do you remember what happened there? No, I don't remember what it happened. It might even be a little before your time, and I think it was either 75 or 6. And Vilas won it? Vilas, no, that was not the year Vilas won it. Vilas was ahead of Orantes. It was either two sets to love or two sets to one, and five love, 40 love in either the third or fourth set, and Orantes came back and beat him. Wow. I will have to look that one up, but Vilas... Let that one get away. It was one of the most amazing comebacks in U.S. Open history. But it was, I, I think it was two sets to love, five love, 40 love. Uh, so that, that one goes down in history. Then, of course, we've got, you know, we have to, you know, give an honorable mention to Aaron Crickstein, who obviously uh, has, has to continue to this day to live with that, although I think he beat Jimmy Connors pretty good in an exhibition match that they played down in Florida. And Patrick McEnroe in that same U.S. Open, two sets to love. And I said to Patrick McEnroe, do I remember this correctly? Was it, was it two sets to love, three love in the third? And he said, no, it was two sets to love, three love, 40 love in the third. <laughs> and he corrected me. So Jimmy Connors is one of those guys that, you know, Michael Pernforce knows as well as anyone. Didn't he have Connors down six, one, six, one, something at Wimbledon only for Connors to, to turn that whole thing around on him. Six, one, six, one, four, one oh. on center court at Wimbledon on oh. grass, which is difficult to lose that match. But of course, against Jimmy, uh, such a great returner, but yeah. Um, I mean, Maybe the most famous is, and I don't even remember, Jana Novotna, oh, Wimbledon yeah. final. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, against Effie Graf, and uh, that was just incredible. And she came back and won Wimbledon yes. the year after or a couple of years after. So for the player that's going to get to the top, they use this, these kind of losses as, as building blocks, and they learn from them, and that's it. You know, For me, it was always losing meant learning. Winning meant I'm playing again tomorrow. That's it. Johnny, what about you? I mean, Are you going to bring that up, Mandy? Well, I mean, I'm, as long as we're talking about Michael Pernforce, we may as well. I mean, because oh, it was boy. not only a tough loss for you, but all of us in Austin. Everybody that ever suited up for the Longhorns was counting on you that day, Johnny. 
Yeah, no, that was that was a tough one. How for me. long did it take to shake that one off? Have you have you yet? Well, I think I shook it off more on the immediate, and then as you look back and you realize as you get older the opportunity you had. Um, you know, Lawson Duncan was waiting in the finals. I was playing really, really well in that semifinals. And just so and just so people know, semis of the NCAA's nineteen eighty four. You and Michael Pernfors in the semifinals now, albeit playing in his home stadium. He played for the Georgia Bulldogs. Athens is the host site. So you are on enemy territory, even though theoretically this should have been a match played on a neutral site. You're one of the top two or three players in the country all year long. And really the only guy that we felt was going to be a tough out for you, no matter when you stepped out on the court with him, was Paul Anacone. But he was taken out of the tournament on the other half of the draw. So it opened things up for you, and now you play Pern Fours in the semis. Yeah, I was very confident going into that match, and um, I didn't feel pressure. Um, I felt like I was playing without pressure and, and doing a good job mentally, and I was up 6-1-5-4. And I think maybe in that game or the game before, there was a situation where um, you know Pern Force hit a ball, and I think the ball popped, and um, I – I grabbed the ball and I gave it to the umpire. And for some reason, the crowd thought I was doing something that wasn't right. And they, and they basically turned against me. And so there was a lot of momentum going against me and, uh, and, and Pern Force capitalized on it, ended up winning seven, six and six, one. So it was a really tough loss. I felt like I had a great chance in the finals. I was going to deflect the question, Andy, and ask Matt's if he remembers one other match we've got to mention, very, very tough situation. Two Americans, Wimbledon semifinal, Malavi Washington and um, Todd Martin. I believe it was the semis, and I believe Martin was serving. Enormous serve, 5-1 in the, in the fifth, in the, in, the, in the fifth set, and ended up losing that. That, that. And two guys, I think they were from the same section, grew up playing juniors together. Uh, Martin was heavily favored. Do you remember that match? I do remember it, yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I think a match like that must probably hurt Todd Martin uh, bitterly because, obviously, Todd Martin did not win a Grand Slam singles title, but he really should have because he was he was not quite at the same level as Jim Courier and Agassi and Pete Sampras and Michael Chang, but not far off and had a big enough game where he – and that could have been the year. Yeah. That could have put him in the finals of Wimbledon. And then you never know. You never know. You could beat uh, Richard Krychek, of course. But um, so, yeah, oh, that hurt. really hurt. But Todd Martin, uh, he's a great guy without that Wimbledon final that year. But you know that Michael Pernfors also, because of that win against you, Johnny, he, it catapulted him into making the French Open final in 1986. That could have been you. Well, you know, in 86, I actually saw him play – um, when I was a new pro and he, he had just turned pro, he was over in Brazil playing these challengers and you could just see, I mean, against these, these great South American clay quarters and, and Pernforce had a lot of success over there and you could see the start of his clay court career. And by the way, when it was raining one day in one of those uh, Brazilian challengers, I, I, there was a place we were staying that had squash courts. And I remember watching Michael Pernforce with a squash racket. I had never even seen squash. I was blown away at what this guy could do on a squash court. 
Well, we had hoped to have Todd Martin on the show, but after bringing up this match against Mal Washington, we'll have to probably put that on hold. But he would go on to make the finals of the U.S. Open some three years later and lose a tough five-setter to the aforementioned Andre Agassi, uh, who would have a hell of a year in 1999 when he would finish his career Grand Slam by winning the French, and then a couple of months later he would win the U.S. Open as well. So, guys, some tough losses for some players, and uh, well, you could probably go on and on with that, but we uh, we all have things to get to, and it's been uh, a quick hour, that's for sure. We want to, again, thank Bethany Maddox-Sands for jumping on with us, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed our Tennis Across America tonight as well. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more great stuff. We're going to try to uh, have a little fun over the course of the next couple of months and hope that 2021 uh, puts us in a position to where we're talking about tennis in front of fans again, starting in the Australian Open match. What's the latest that you've heard on that? We'll give you the last word tonight. Yeah, the, so the latest that I've heard is that it's going to go ahead. Uh, the Australian Open um, are uh, lining up uh, resorts that have tennis courts, uh, and they're going to put the players in bubbles for two weeks, but they will be able to practice. Uh, so it be interesting to see Roger Federer staying at a, at a resort, having to practice on the resort courts. But the Australian Open, they, they, they do such a great – I'm sure they will resurface the courts, and they'll, they want a good product. And I think that's, that's the whole point. They want a good product. I don't want to give the, the players uh, the best chance possible to show what they can do. But, but so far, it is going ahead – uh, and I think that's pretty much set in stone. So there's a sneak peek at early 2021. He's Mats Vlander, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world, and also a Wimbledon doubles champion. Let's not leave that out. Also for myself, Andy Zoden, and two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, this is KickServeRadio.com. We're part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back real soon with much more great stuff. Have a great fall, everybody.